0: It was former President and World War II military general Dwight D. Eisenhower who once said, We succeed only as we identify a single overriding objective and make all other considerations bend to that one objective. Let me repeat that. We succeed only as we identify... One single overriding objective, and we make all other considerations bend to that one objective. Simply put, success comes through deliberate and unrelenting pursuit of purpose. Success comes through deliberate and unrelenting pursuit of purpose. And as we take that general principle and apply it now to our church situation, we basically could boil down the point of this principle to ourselves by saying, if we are to be useful in God's service this year, we must live a radically purpose-driven, life as a church. Now, you have heard me say this before, I love New Year's and I love New Year's resolutions. Not because I keep them all, because usually I don't keep most of them. But I am convinced that it is proper, that it is important and it is necessary for us at certain points in the calendar year to stop to think to reconnect and to recommit ourselves to our first and foundational principles. And that's what I want us to see here and to receive guidance from this morning as church and as individuals as we look to the model of Jesus Christ. Because what we see here modeled by Jesus Christ in this passage is that Jesus was radically guided by purpose. Jesus was radically guided by purpose in his actions. I want us to draw that out. Before we do, I want us to set up the context so we can see how this emerges from the passage. If we step back from verse 35 and we scan up the page of our text this morning, we'll notice beginning in verse 21 that as Mark has it, Jesus has just completed his first day of public ministry. And if you're familiar with those verses, you will realize that that is a remarkable first day of public ministry. In verse 21, we're told that he entered into the synagogue in Capernaum and he began to preach. And as he proclaimed the word of God, the people were sitting there utterly amazed, mesmerized by the power and the authority of his delivery of his teaching and his instruction. In fact, the word was so powerful that it instigated a confrontation with the demonic, as you see in verse 23 and following. We're told that there was a man there with an unclean spirit who began to cry out, saying, What business do we have with you there, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? You see, to the authority and the power of his preaching of his word, it instigated this confrontation immediately because the demonic understood that with the presence of Jesus Christ, people must make decisions. You are either for or against Jesus. You are not neutral. You are not sitting on the fence. It is not optional to make a choice. Jesus brings a sword And he says, you will either be for me or you will be against me. And the demonic immediately understood that as they heard the power of his voice. Well, you know the rest of the story that Jesus, as he confronted him, after the man was thrown on the floor into convulsions by the unclean spirit, cast it out and immediately the news of Jesus spread throughout the entire region. We're told in verse 28, the news about Him spread everywhere to all the surrounding district of Galilee. The people were not only talking about the power of Jesus in the preaching of the Word, but they were talking about the power of Jesus in confronting the demonic. People were abuzz over the public ministry of Christ. Now, notice what happens next, because it's very important. As the news of Jesus is beginning to fan out across the hillsides of Galilee, Jesus begins to serve. Jesus begins to serve by healing. We're told that He heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law of her sickness. And then in verse 32, we have this scene, when it is evening, it says, after the sun had set, they began bringing to Him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. Now note this verse 33. The whole city had gathered at the door. The whole city had gathered at the door. We get the picture of now the surrounding region standing on the doorstep of Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to get as we reconnect back into purpose Jesus first day of public ministry was a smashing success if you were ever going to begin a church plant this is exactly how you would want to do it you would want to do it with the whole city knocking on the doors of the church asking to come in for ministry now this is very important. As we get down into the issue of purpose. Because the very next thing that we see in verse 35 is shocking. Because we're told here in verse 35 in the early morning, that is the next day, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, he left the house, and he went away to a secluded place and was praying there. He was praying. We're going to come back to this in a moment. But the disciples start searching for him because they don't know where he is. And they say, we've got a slew of people lying back a mile long who need your help. What are you doing? And here they find Jesus in a secluded place praying. Right there at that moment, just after finishing off a period of passioned prayer Jesus says to the disciples let us go somewhere else to towns nearby so that I may preach notice his purpose that is what I came for that is what I came for you see Jesus understands his mission he did not come to set up a mega synagogue in Capernaum Jesus did not come to center a base of ministry merely in Galilee to collect a cult following. What Jesus says is, I have come for this purpose, and the purpose is to preach the Word, and it's not just here. He says it's elsewhere. I must fan out across the land of Palestine. I must minister to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You see here, He's not distracted by success. He's not vacillating. He's not riding high on yesterday's ministry success and consolidating gains to to bring together a huge megachurch. Jesus is in touch with his purpose, and he says, no, that's not what I've come forth for. I have come forth to preach the gospel throughout Israel. He knew his purpose. And that leads us this morning to think about ourselves in relationship to this passage. We have a purpose. We have a purpose as a church, and the purpose of our church is that we are to be a community of witnesses to the gospel to build the church for the glory of God. We are to be a witness, a community of witnesses to build the church for the glory of God. That is the call of All Saints Reformed Church, a community of witnesses to the gospel to build the church of God. Or oh, we could put it this way, you've heard this before, as we've talked about this. In some of our meetings. By the grace of God to become a financially self-supporting, reproducing church. You see, that's the aim of this congregation right here. To be a missionary people who are spreading the gospel in this community and beyond in order to build a church that builds other churches. That's it. To build a church that builds other churches. That's the purpose. I'll say it again, we are here for the purpose to build a church that builds other churches. And that can only be done as we consolidate and galvanize around that principle that we are a community. I didn't say that was my calling. I said it's our calling. It's our purpose. And there's two sides to fulfilling that purpose. And the first side is the church. As a church, we resolve to fulfill that goal by the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord's Day to Lord's Day. Collectively as a church, that is how we fulfill this calling. As a church, we do it through the public preaching of the word of God. We do that through a constructed community outreach event. We do that by advertising. We do that by our physical presence and existence here within the community. We come that we we fulfill that by becoming incarnational in our community. But it's for this purpose, to preach the gospel, to reach the lost. That's our purpose. We can't ever lose our sense of purpose, because when the church loses its sense of purpose and its calling, which is directly from Jesus Christ, which is to make disciples by teaching everything he commanded, the church loses focus and reshapes its calling. When the church loses its focus on what Jesus commissioned it to do, the church goes in the wrong direction, becoming a place that facilitates spiritual experiences, becoming a place that promotes concerts and cultural programs, offering entertainment for people of all ages. But that's not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is not to be a community center or a social organization. It's to be a word and sacrament institution which proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ for the building up of the church for the glory of God. That's our purpose. A community of witnesses to the gospel, to reach the lost. To build a church for the glory of God. That's the church's obligation, and now there's an individual obligation. The individual obligation, as I already said earlier in our service, emerges from Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. You can turn there with me if you like. It emerges in Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, and we have uh, examined these verses at some length other times, so we're probably not going to go terribly in depth here, but I want us at least to get the talking points, the major bullet points out of this particular passage as we apply it to ourselves and how we as individuals connect to this purpose of the congregation. And the Apostle Paul here says to the saints that they conduct themselves with wisdom towards those who are outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. The very first part of our commitment to the purpose of the church is that we as individuals, the Apostle Paul says, are to conduct ourselves with wisdom towards those who are outsiders. Conduct is a command. It means to live. Paul commands us to live, first of all, around outsiders who are outsiders. Well, outsiders here uh, literally mean those who are not a part of a particular group. But obviously, the Apostle Paul is referring to unbelievers and unchurched people. He says, you go live around those people. Just like Jesus did. Just like Jesus did. He lived around the outsiders. You didn't find him uh, gracing the halls of the academia, the religious or power elite people. Hanging out with the mayor and the supervisors. He was with people who were broken, who were hurting, who were unchurched, who were lost. The Apostle Paul says, your part of the mission of the church is that you as an individual conduct yourself... With wisdom towards those who are outside, you live around them, noticing this, making the most of every opportunity. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying, here is your obligation as you go out and you live your life in the world. And when you do that with wisdom, it is according to the word of God, applying biblical principles and biblical commandments to how you live. So that your life, in terms of your speech and your conduct and your goals... And your attitudes and the way you spend money and the way you treat people is conformed to the Word of God. When you live that way, Paul says opportunities come in your way to testify about Christ. And he says when that happens, you buy it up. You seize it. That's the first part of your obligation in fulfilling the purpose of this church. As a community of witnesses to the Gospel, the very first part is that you engage the world. You live in it. And you live in it with wisdom. And in the second side of that, the Apostle Paul says, now is your opportunity, here is your chance, and here is how you buy that opportunity up. He says in verse 6, let your speech be seasoned, be always with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how to respond to each person. you see that? He says, now when you've had this chance, after you've been intentionally adorning the Gospel in the world, it's going to happen. Somebody is going to ask a question. Somebody is going to ask a question. He says, you buy up that opportunity and here's how you do it. You talk to them. You speak with them. With speech that is with grace and season with salt. And you say, what in the world does it mean to have speech that's seasoned with salt? Well, I think in layman terms it means, it means this. Speak like a human being speak like a human being to another human being. What does that mean? You know, one of our problems is, as reformed people, is the nature of our faith is highly intellectual. It involves grasping large theological principles and doctrines and enormous ideas. Sometimes it leads us to uh, Overcomplicate things when somebody says Hey, what is the hope that you have? And what we want to do is launch out on a, a lecture On church history You know? Or we want to immediately engage them in debates between uh, Gerstner, Sproul, and and, Van Til over the nature of apologetics. Or or we want to talk about the nature of epistemology. Or uh, we want to have all kinds of abstract discussions. What the Apostle Paul is saying to you this morning is talk to them as a human being. Have you experienced the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's as simple as that. Do you know what it's like to be a sinner? Do you know what it's like to be lost? Do you know even better what it's like to be found? That's it. Do you know what it's like to be found? It's like we were seeing in Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is thundering across the face of the waters. When the voice of the Lord comes, the mountains skip. The cedars of Lebanon break apart, and the deer in the forest run like mad. Because the voice of the Lord causes people to react. But more than that, it finds people. Through the preaching of the Word, the Lord finds people. Have you been found? Do you know what it's like to be released from the captivation of enslavement to sin? Do you know what it's like for God to be merciful to you, a sinner? Do you know what it's like to be that poor publican who Jesus speaks about? Is in private saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't deserve it. I've blown it. I've not trusted in You. I've not walked obediently. I haven't deserved anything. I've gone against Your Word. I've done everything wrong. But I know there is no way for me to put my life back together. Only You can do that. Have you ever been there? Do you know what it's like to feel that desperation of emptiness and brokenness and inability and you know there's no way out of your situation except the mercy of Jesus. Well, that's what it means to speak seasoned with salt. (laughs) say, I once was lost but now I'm found. Once was blind but now I see. See, that's speaking Seasoned with salt. That's your job. The church preaches the word publicly. You as individuals in private, as you adorn the gospel in the world, speak to people as one human being to the next. Can you do that? Well, maybe you can't. If you don't know Jesus, you can't do that. And so in order for you to be a part of this mission, you have to know Jesus Christ unto salvation. I didn't say know about Jesus. I said know Jesus as Savior, as Redeemer, as Justifier, as Forgiver, as Merciful Shepherd, as the one who picks me up when I keep falling down and making shipwreck of my life as that one who keeps extending his hand to me and saying, I forgive you. I forgive you. You may have lived like a bum and squandered my gracious gifts to you but he's the one who always comes back and he says I forgive you and and extends the hand and lifts you back up and motivates you and moves you along and builds you up and continues to renew you if you know Jesus in that way you can be a part of this mission and that's what we have to do the church has its side preaching the gospel publicly individuals have their side which is to speak the gospel with saltiness humanly Secondly, from our passage, coming back to Mark chapter 1. I haven't forgot that we're preaching from Mark 1 today, so come back. Jesus' actions were guided with purpose. The purpose was to fan out across Galilee, across the land of Palestine, and preach the Word. That was His purpose. Secondly, uh, we learn from this passage that purpose is now pursued without distraction. Purpose is pursued without distraction. I learned that from verses 36 and 37 here. As the disciples are coming to Jesus with all of these people standing at the door, Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him. They said to him, Everyone is looking for you. You need to see a couple of things there so that you understand that this is about the disciples distracting Jesus. That word, first of all, in verse 36, searching, uh, means to hunt something down like a dog. Okay, I don't know if you know what that means I can give you an example uh, It used to be when I was a kid uh, I used to go pheasant hunting And it's the most disturbing experience you can imagine Because if you ever stepped on a pheasant You know your heart comes up from the bottom of your belly button Out of your mouth But when you hit them Sometimes they run in circles And this way And figure eights And that way And you, you, know, you don't know where they are So you need a dog to track them down One day I was out doing that with my dog And he was too disobedient for me to take him off the leash that's putting it nicely and, 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 and so he was uh, pursuing this down uh, pheasant and he was going this way and that way and this way and I thought he was a jerk on his chain I started yelling calling a uh, you know, stupid dog and everything but the fact of the matter is he was just simply following the scent that's what the animal was doing he was simply tracking down like a like a like a A hunting dog does, following the scent. That's the sense here, with determination and resolve. They're moving all over, searching Jesus out uh, with diligence. And then it says, when they come to him, they said, everyone is looking for you. And by the way, that is not for Jesus' information. That's not a report. They are not supplying him with news. Hey, did you hear the news? People are looking for you. This is a rebuke. That's what it is. Everyone is looking at. like, don't you know? Why are you squandering your time out here in a secluded place by yourself on your knees praying when there's a whole town out there waiting to be saved and who wants you to come minister to them? You see, I want you to know what the disciples are saying here. They're saying that based upon this enormously successful first day of ministry, we can really have something. We can build a big church. We can attract a lot of people. And they were staking their future to Jesus' ministry success and saying, Come on now. Get it together. We want to be a part of something big. Let's get back there to Capernaum. Let's get back to town and let's blow the lid off this thing. They probably had huge dreams. This is a pep talk with an edge. And Notice what Jesus says in response to that. He says, let's go elsewhere. Let's go somewhere else, to towns nearby, that I may preach the work. You see, Jesus turns down their offer. And he says, let's go to the towns. Let's go elsewhere. That's the purpose for which I came. You see, Jesus understood his mission. He came... To be a shepherd to the lost sheep of the whole house of Israel. Not just the pastor with the biggest church in Capernaum. You see, we could be distracted from the purpose. And I know as well as I say this that we will all be distracted. We know what the right thing to do is. We know that we are to be a community of witnesses to the gospel to build up the church for the glory of God. But I know every one of us will become distracted because life is full of distractions. Work, sickness, lack of money, physical ailments. But beyond that, there's real spiritual factors which distract us. Sometimes we fall into sin. Sometimes we are tempted to doubt God. Sometimes we may think that His Word is out of date, so we need to switch things up a little bit. You see? But Jesus is modeling how to implement purpose. And it's without distraction. And so we have to go back to first principles as we think about where we are at the beginning of this year as a church. We are to be here as a missionary institution to love and to reach out to people who don't know Jesus and who are unchurched. And we do that by resisting distraction. And you say, how in the world do we resist distraction? Arm ourselves with purpose and keep our focus and our effort and our labor On what Christ has called us to do as a church and as individuals. And the answer is prayer. This is a a remarkable description of Jesus. Thirdly here, purpose is reinforced in prayer. Notice in verse 35, it says, In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and he went to a secluded place and was praying. Jesus was reinforced in purpose through prayer. That's obvious, isn't it? He was reinforced in purpose through prayer. But I want us to see the nature of the prayer because it's crucial to helping us understand what kind of prayer reinforces purpose. Now, you probably can't see it in English, but in the original, it's like a megaphone. Jesus got up early. The very first word in our passage means literally between 3 and 6 a.m. The second word in our passage means before the sun came up. And the very third word, just to help us understand that it was early, means literally very, 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 very early. I think Mark's trying to tell us something with that about the nature of the prayer that reinforces the purpose. And then he says after that that Jesus went off to a secluded place. And literally that means a lonely or forsaken place. In other words, it's a place of solitude. It's a place of peace and quiet. It's a place where he can sit and think while he prays without distraction. And calls upon the Lord to help him understand his purpose, his role, his calling, and how he's going to do it. That's the kind of prayer that reinforces purpose. Now I can already hear the people who aren't morning people here groaning. Personally, I love the morning. It's the best time of the day. It is really the best time of the day. If you're a morning person. So, I'm just going to say, it doesn't necessarily have to be morning. It has to be a time set aside, though. That's the point of it all. You ask yourself, why was Jesus, after this enormously successful first day of ministry, in verse 35, up before the crack of dawn, the very next day? And the only answer that I can come up with here is that this was His pattern. He didn't break patterns. Here he is pleading with the Lord, praying, thinking. You see, that's the kind of prayer life that reinforces purpose and strengthens us to fulfill what God has called us to do. And that means then, for application purposes, we as a church need to recommit ourselves to this kind of purposeful prayer life. As a congregation, we need to be the kind of congregation who comes together and fervently calls upon the name of the Lord in prayer to help to ask God to help us fulfill the calling that He's given to us. And so, beginning next week, and once a month after that, After the second service, as a congregation, we're going to gather together and split up in two groups, one with Elder John and one with me, and we're actually going to pray for help. We're going to pray for God's blessing. We're going to pray for specific people we know. We're going to pray for specific situations. We're going to pray for God's blessing upon the ministry of this church. We're going to pray that God would assist us in our purpose, which is to be a community of witnesses for the gospel, to build the church for the glory of God. Because that kind of prayer collectively is what reinforces purpose and strengthens us along the way. But secondly, it is an admonition. The example itself is an admonition to us as individuals. You think about it. Here is the Son of God incarnate. And what is he doing? He's on his knees in a solitary place early in the morning praying. You know what? If Jesus needed that, I bet you we do. Just a a while yes I suppose if Jesus needed it we need that and so the example of the passage the example of Christ calls us to that same commitment and so I challenge you this morning as members of this church at the beginning of a new year you set aside time to pray you set aside time for the Lord that's the best time for the Lord and you call upon Him and you ask for His help to be that kind of purpose who goes out into the world around the outsiders and conducts yourself with wisdom and then is prepared to answer people with salty talk. You need prayer to do that. One last thing here we're going to see from our passage and then we're going to conclude this morning and that is finally purpose. Purpose is implemented strategically. Purpose is implemented strategically. And I get that from verse 38. We're told here, Jesus says, let us go elsewhere, to towns nearby that may preach the gospel. That word there in the original literally means administrative district. In other words, it's similar to our county seat. It is... uh, It it, it reflects the sense of centers of significance, places where people live, okay? In other words, Jesus had thought strategically as he had prayed, as he had reflected, as he had understood and internalized his mission. He knew that he can't just simply repeat slogans, I'm here to preach the gospel, but never connect it to life. You see, the way Jesus describes his calling, it's clear that he understands that he has a strategy to fulfill his purpose. And that is to go to the administrative seat. It's to go where the people are in order to preach to them the word. And that's so important for us to get. If we are to truly pursue our purpose as a congregation, we must think strategically about its fulfillment. You know, we can't allow this to simply be a slogan. We'll have a purpose-driven year. Sounds good, doesn't it? You know, just have a slogan and put it on our bulletins and and all of our letterheads. Let's be purpose-driven. That's a great slogan—catchy, easy, memorizable. We can reproduce it at any time, moment, or spot. But that's not simply what we're being called to do. Is to have a slogan. We're called to implement the purpose strategically and that will require us to do some work it's something that is fulfilled intentionally and as we conclude i want to give us some examples of some ways in which we can intentionally and strategically fulfill this purpose obviously it begins with prayer that sounds like uh, an obvious application and i realize that it is but it is uh, if we're not if we're not steeping this in prayer, uh, we're not going to go anywhere. And so, the strategic application of the purpose begins in specific individual prayer for yourself, for your situations, for the church, for people, for individuals, for grace, for God's blessing. It begins with prayer. Second, it begins with uh, thought. There is absolutely no way in the world that we can construct a one-size-fits-all cookie-cutter approach to implementing our purpose as individuals. It can't be done. You and I have two uh, distinct situations. We're individuals. We have different experiences. We have different personalities. We have different temperaments. We have different ways of doing things. We have different contexts in which we live. Different people we know. So there cannot be a cookie cutter approach. There has to be a distinct and unique approach. You have to think about yourself, your life situation, and how you can fulfill this. It requires thought. I believe Jesus put thought in it that is reflected in the word that he uses. He thought as he prayed and reflected. How can I best fulfill my purpose? Put some time into it. Third, we need to be the kind of people who show hospitality. If we are to fulfill our purpose and to live our lives around the unchurched and unbelievers, we must be a people who are given to hospitality, and that is intentional. You know, you have to get close to people before you can talk to them. You have to get close I get so disturbed when I see these clips, and I know it's done on purpose to make Christians look like a bunch of buffoons. But I really do get bothered by these pictures of these Christians with big bullhorns shouting intimidatingly. Jesus loves you! It's scary when I hear that. I'm scared of those people when I see them. You can't shout at people. <coughs> you have to be close to people. You have to be close. And you know, you get close over coffee. You get close as you, as you find a place to sit down and just relax and talk. You have to be intentional about that. So maybe you as a family invite some of your coworkers and their families out to the park for an afternoon. You have a barbecue and you get to know them. Maybe you invite your buddies over to the house to watch a ball game or UFC. Maybe you resolve to uh, get to know all the parents on your child's literally your soccer team. Whatever it is, it's going to involve close contact. It's going to involve you intentionally taking initiative to build a relationship with them, and that's hospitality. And that's our challenge, to commit ourselves to that kind of a lifestyle as Christians, who live close to people, so we can talk humanly to people. Fourthly, this is something we do as an entire congregation. And I'm going to end with this. This is something we have to do as an entire congregation. This is not just uh, you trying this as an individual. All of us have to do this. All of us. We have to, in this church, cultivate a real sense of community here among ourselves. We have to cultivate a real sense of community here among ourselves. In other words, that means that we are to be like a family. We've always tried to operate that way. we need to continue to commit ourselves we need to live as a family to cultivate a real sense of community where we pray for each other where we help each other where we communicate to each other we show hospitality to each other we sympathize with each other we uphold one another we have a common sense of identity we have a common sense of purpose we have a common set of practices we have a common way of looking at the world we reinforce each other that's what I'm saying that's what a community does we reinforce perspective We reinforce beliefs. We reinforce relationship together. So that when people see that, they marvel and they say, Wow! Now that's not something I'm coming up with. That's something that Jesus prayed for. John chapter 17, you can look it up for yourself. But Jesus prayed this for the church. He prayed that the world would come to know That the Father had sent the Son for the salvation of the world as the world saw the unity and the love of the church for each other. People of God, this is our calling as a body, as a collective unit in order to fulfill our purpose, which is to be a community of witnesses to the gospel, to build the church for the glory of God. We do this together. We build a community. We cultivate a community. And we show the love of Christ to each other. That means every person here resolves to do that. We all need to make a commitment to doing that. We cannot have people sitting on the sidelines. We cannot have people sitting by themselves. We cannot have people avoiding others. We cannot have two or three people spending uh, time together every week ignoring everybody else at church. Wrong. Absolutely 100% wrong. And you say, well, Pastor Sattel, I'm not really good at being relational. Pastor Sattel, I don't get along with it. Pastor Sattel, I got an awkward personality. Uh, I'm socially challenged. All that stuff. I know I am too. But you work at it because Jesus said to. Jesus said to. And Jesus prayed that when we come together as a community, the world would come to know Him. And that He was the one that the Father sent, because He loved the world. That whosoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So you ask Jesus to help you. And we together build a community. That's my challenge to you guys. That's our challenge to our church, that we would have a year driven by purpose. And I want to conclude again with the wise words of General Eisenhower, we succeed only as we identify a single overriding objective. We succeed only as we identify a single overriding objective. And we make all other considerations bend to that one objective. Let's internalize that thought and ask God to bless and establish the work of our hands. Let's pray.